Welcome to episode 27 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Join, as always, by my co-host, a woman who is single-handedly putting the Canadian beer industry out of business by doing dry February, the great Mary, all business, Fincher. Good, after- good, good evening, Mary. How are you doing today? You fucker. <laughs> I mean, you were. Let us proceed to the podcast immediately. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I'm good. How are you? <laughs> oh, swimmingly. Just peachy. Absolutely peachy. Everything's going great. It's fabulous. We had a good live. We, always we did. Kind of tip, we had a, I thought it was a really good one. Good day. It's too bad that the rest of the country is on this freezing and crappy as I yeah. sit here in a 50 degree Massachusetts day in February, which is weird, but hey, yeah. we'll take it. But this begins a pretty busy week for the old breakfast club. It okay. does, yes. By the time this drops on Saturday, we'll have had our fifth round table which is tomorrow yeah. as we record this and then we're going to have some fun over the weekend again so i think we have a lot of good things coming you know what's great about tonight by the way nothing against these like, about valentine's day or john wilkes booth but we get to go back into battles today i know i'm really excited about this the only battles we've had lately the ones you've been hitting me with so <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to getting actually into the old civil war again because we haven't done it feels like i've done that in a while he's still- lying all business He's exaggerating. No, 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 no. Not you, but, right? No, not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. We're going to talk tonight. We're going to take it old school again. We're going to go right at the beginning. We're going to go back to the Western theater, which mm-hmm. we've been spending a lot of time out in the West. And we're going to talk about the right at the beginning of the Ulysses S. Grant legend, right? Yep. Which is going to be Fort Henry and then mostly Fort Donaldson and what he did to make a name for himself it really the early stages of the Civil War gave Lincoln somebody in the West and really an overall general that he could really count on. Yeah, this is kind of where, as you said, the, the legend of Grant begins. It's in the Western theater. Donaldson and Henry are a very interesting study. I mean, like you and I both spent hours and hours on this one without realizing, I think, how much there was as we were researching it, right? Like there's just, there's actually a lot to this. And it's, I don't know, to me, it almost seems like all you hear about with it is Grant's surrender or not grant surrender, but the surrender that, you know, unconditional I was going to say, grant. I must have researched a different battle. I didn't, <laughs> no, I didn't surrender mine. I mean, I mean, he becomes unconditional surrender. Does, you, does, your have, does yours have UFOs too? Bucker. Okay. But right. But what this does is you're, you're absolutely right though. People study Fort Donaldson and they, they know about the unconditional surrender and yeah. they know about that, but they don't know how it builds into that. And we're going to talk a little bit about this and how close it came for Grant to not become Grant in this battle, which people mm-hmm. I think don't really know. And there's a lot of names that we discovered in this battle that don't get mentioned a lot, but probably deserve a little bit more mention, you know, like Lou Wallace. We'll talk about Lou Wallace today. You're right. He's absolutely involved in this. And I'm curious to see how you get, oh, Howard into this one. Cause I'm not sure how you're going to pull this one. I was thinking about that. I don't know how I'm going <laughs> I don't to. Think you're gonna be able to as close as I've got is in my name, the O and O Henry. <laughs> oh, well, I guess that's that. That's well, let's it. kind of paint the picture of what was going on at the time. This all takes place in February of 1862. Before February of 1862, out back in the West, there wasn't a heck of a lot going on. There was a city called Cairo, Illinois, most southernest, basically Union City at that time. And it was a little bit north of a bunch of rivers that really was that Mississippi and Tennessee River network. And even back then, well, they had to, back then for sure, they knew the importance of these rivers because these rivers were the highways of today. You couldn't get anywhere without controlling these rivers. So really, we mentioned the Mississippi and the Tennessee. Really, by controlling these rivers, what it really did, it, it would help disrupt the rebel supply lines. 
it would also allow you to move your armies up and down the rivers. So if you're fighting on the out west, I mean, and you're fighting the south, you had to have it. There's no question. At the time, though, the army and the navy weren't as close as they probably could have been, right? But they did ultimately want to launch launch a joint attack down these rivers in 1862, and, and it really because of two people that we're going to talk about: U.S. Grant, which we've already mentioned, and Andrew Foote, mm-hmm. who is a, a Navy flag officer. So they're close. It's kind of unusual at the time for that to happen, just because the way it was. Their their relationship really is really was the key to this entire thing because it allowed them to be able to use an overland campaign and a and a water campaign. And it really and it was really a fascinating study as you go through to see how it worked out. Because we're gonna talk about two forts that you had to have, Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson. Yeah. And Fort Donaldson Grant said that it was the gate to Nashville, which was a place of great military and political importance. So not only is the Union trying to get a hold of these rivers. So they want the Mississippi, but they also need the Tennessee and they need the Cumberland as well. But they also are going to go after Nashville and they want to somehow get the rebels out of Kentucky too, because somehow they've got up into Kentucky as well. Well, Kentucky was supposed to be a neutral territory. It was. Yep. It was supposed to be, it, uh, the, the Rebs violated. But speaking of the Rebs, just an idea what they were doing to do. The Rebs knew they had to protect these rivers too. They had a lot of problems though going for them. So they had some primarily used forts to defend these rivers down in the Tennessee and the, the Cumberland River we're going to talk about, but also the Mississippi. The Mississippi had the better forts. Yeah. The Tennessee and the Cumberland, the forts were not all that great. No, and they were hastily um, constructed too at the beginning of the Civil War. Right. When we talk about these forts, we're not talking about Fort Sumter here. We're talking about wood and logs and earthworks piled up, and, and that's what it was. The funny part about it, though, is when you look back on it, they should have defended them better because the, the area on the Tennessee and the Cumberland, it was a strong producer of grain, horses, mules, all kinds of stuff. It was also a strong iron producer at the time. Mm-hmm. The iron works in Clarksville, Tennessee. Last trade to Clarksville. Clarksville. Mary, <laughs> there you go. I read that. <laughs> I want to see if you were daydream believing and not paying attention, but that's okay. That iron works in Clarksville was the second most biggest iron works to the Tredegar in, in Richmond. So it, it was important. Nashville, as you mentioned, was a huge gunpowder town. That's what you had in that area. Defending that whole area was a guy named Albert Sidney Johnson from Kentucky. And we're going to talk a lot about him. Educated at Transylvania University, Mary. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then he eventually went to West Point. You know who he was a classmate with at Transylvania University? Oh, was it Davis? Jefferson Davis. Yes. All right. Jefferson Davis. He was a classmate of his. He eventually went to West Point. He graduated eighth of a class of 41. They said he was tall, great sense of humor. Davis loved him, said he was a great soldier, the ablest man, civil or military, Confederate or federal. So Davis definitely liked him. He was also a veteran of the Black Hawk War. Oh, the Black so, the Black there Hawk. There you go, right there. So make sure you enunciate. But basically, Johnson, he ran that Western military department, which stretched from the Appalachians all the way to the Ozarks, which is a huge 500-mile battle line, had 70,000 men defending it, and there was really no action going on back there at the time. The Union knew you had to have it, though. So Henry Halleck, who was commanding the Western Theater, we'll talk about him briefly. He was in charge of that Western Theater. He was basically there, but not present in any of these battles. He was whatever he was doing. But he was a guy who we talked a lot about him who became quite jealous and envious when the subordinates got credit. And it was what's what's going to ultimately get him. Yeah, His rivalry he had with U.S. Grant, with Don Carlos Buell, and the big being stuff of legend that they would talk about. Don Carlos Buell, Department of the Ohio, he, 
you know, he, he's coming off a victory at Mill Springs, and he was, he was basically doing his own thing in that part of the country as well. You know, Lincoln, he wanted to be attacked, and he wanted to go, so he wanted to attack in this area. But the hard time he had was coming up with someone to come up with a battle plan because they all didn't get along. No, it was like just this kind of this contest of egos, especially between Halleck and Buell. And, you know, Grant does go to Halleck to present him with a plan. And Halleck basically just brushes him off, like says, you know, this isn't going to happen. And he goes back to Caro. I think it's Carol, right? That he goes back to completely like just. Cairo. You know what, you know what he says? He says, the, he says to hit the plant is preposterous. Yeah. That's the word he used. Preposterous. He barely lets Grant explain and Grant just kind of goes back like, he, and Grant kind of takes some of the fault into himself and says like, well, it might've been the way that I explained it. You know, maybe I wasn't being clear enough, but still Grant is pretty dejected when he leaves Halleck. And mm-hmm. he says of this time, like, from the Battle of Belmont until early February 1862, the troops under my command did little except prepare for the long struggle which proved to be before them. So he has no idea when anything is going to happen at all. Let's talk about Grant's plan. So the plan that he presents to Halleck, he wants to take he wants to take Andrew Foote with him. He wants to sail down the Tennessee River. He wants to capture Fort Henry which is a smaller fort on the, the Tennessee River. Then he wants to basically use that to kind of as a springboard to take Fort Donaldson. But how does come around, though? He does finally change his mind. I mean, for Grant, there's a million reasons why Grant wants to do this. You know, his reputation has been sullied. He wants to redeem himself. He's got this drinking thing hanging over him still. He's at the point of his life now. He's back in the Army. He needs to prove himself. Lincoln loved Grant at the beginning. He didn't complain he didn't ask for reinforcements all the time. They both knew, Grant and Foote both knew that Fort Henry and Donaldson, for that matter, were the weak spot in Sidney Johnson's line. And they yep. knew it. Yep. And, and they, knew, they knew it had to be attacked. One of the reasons that it's a weak spot is not just because of kind of the, the terrain. Like the forts are very poorly constructed. It was actually Bushrod Johnson who uh, he's... Uh, Good old Bushrod is back. We'll be here for Bushrod he, later. Actually, he was an engineer at the time in the Confederate Army, and he is one mm-hmm. of the ones in charge of constructing these forts. It was said by General Lloyd Tyman, who will be in charge at one of the forts. Um, he said that, I think it was Fort Henry had with was without one redeeming feature. And the history of military engineering records no parallel in this case. So it's very shitty construction. But not only that, like Johnson is telling both General Polk, General Tillman, right? Go on. I can't talk to him. <laughs> she says. Say Massachusetts. Yeah, Massachusetts. Yeah, you did I it. Know. So General Tillman, he's telling them that they need to keep a vigilant eye on, ten- on the Tennessee River, fortify opposite Fort Henry. No time should be lost. That's what Johnson is going to write to Polk on October 17, 1861. Nothing happens from that. And he warns him again on October 31st, 1861. He sends a message this time to Tillman. The utmost vigilance is enjoined as there have been gross negligence in this request. You will push forward the completion of the works and armament with the utmost activity. So in other words, get your shit together. That doesn't happen. And in January of 1862, he sends Tillman one final message. Occupy and entrench the heights opposite Fort Henry. Do not lose a moment. Work at night. So Johnson's getting an idea that something is up with the Federals and they're going to try and attack. No, and to your point, Fort Henry is a shitty place. I mean, as mm-hmm. far as how it's built together, it's, it's built basically on a, on a low bank. It's below sea level. It's dominated by surrounding hills, subject to flooding all the time, which we're going to find out about. Sidney Johnson, they, they knew they were in trouble at that fort. They just knew they were. So did Jefferson Davis. I mean, mm-hmm. he basically knew in that area that was the soft underbelly of the Confederacy at that time. 
Now they're getting, you know, success in the East that's going on, but this is kind of like the blind spot and they know that they're weak there. The other issue they had was the weaponry. Exactly. They, they just did, you basically had antiquated weapons. They requested weapons from Davis. They ain't, they ain't got any yeah, send Davis you. Davis so, like, I don't even fucking send you. You know, because, well, you know, so, and also the other thing that's going against them too is Albert City Johnson. You know, you mentioned Thielman. Johnson is preoccupied with Columbus and Bowling Green, a little bit of the, the North there. So, yeah. So the focus is not, you know, you got a bad construction of this fort right on the river, bad weapons, you know, you don't have a focus from government, and you've got a union general, you know, an attitude who wants to prove himself. So you can go to sort of see where this one's going, right? When this whole thing gets started, it's February 5th, 1862. They basically are going to put the troops on the boats and they're going to sail down the river. They're going to have all of Foot's ironclads and three gunboats as well made of wood. You're going to have 15,000 men. They're going to have, and they're going to land a few miles south of Fort Henry. And the plan is pretty simple. It's basically drop you guys off. We're going to sail near Fort Henry, and we're going to pound you with artillery. Meanwhile, Grant's going to come from the south. He's going to take Henry from the rear. There you go. <laughs> going in the he back door gonna... again. Yeah, exactly. Yes, poor and Henry. What... Poor Henry. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to put them in a bad situation. Well, this is all going on now. You flip to February 6th. It rains. So just so much weather controls all these battles. It's just it comes the worst place, the worst time. Yeah. So it starts to rain. So what happens, as I mentioned before, about the flooding? Fort Henry gets flooded. The whole lower level gets flooded. Only nine of the guns are above the water. And even then the water is almost there and it's right. threatening to get at like, you know, kind of just the rest of the ammo that they have as well. The Union guns will have the ability to fire twice as many as they can. So then that's that's a bad math equation. Fort Henry's commander, Lloyd Tillman, he, from he's Maryland guy, by the way, who got later would be killed at Vicksburg at Battle of Champion Hill. He realized that this is a disaster. What he does is he takes his entire 2,500-man garrison and sends them to Fort Donaldson and says, via Condillos, it's 12 miles away, go. He's going to leave one artillery company behind to delay the Federals and defend the fort. You know, again, it gets even worse. So, But to their credit, Mary... They fight for two solid hours. They do. Boats. And they're right. being pounded by the ironclads. It's Foot's flagship Cincinnati that fires the first shot. And that's the signal to the rest of the ironclads. There's four of them in total to start firing at the fort. Yeah. But yeah, as you said, you know, these men like in Fort Henry, they put up a pretty good fight considering they're, they are in water that is like up to their knees. I oh. guess I would, be, would have been completely submersed. Oh, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be like a mermaid <laughs> thing is it's like the weather is helping the confederates in a way though because it's mm -hmm. keeping grant from getting there grant's doing his own mud march he can't make it he's stuck in the swamps but the guns are doing all the work because there's no one to stop in there so they do damage the essex the cincinnati um the carondelet gets hit they'll repair that one for the next the next battle but there's that one story where the one shot from the confederates hits that ship's boiler the essex and yeah. scalds 20 men to death which doesn't sound fun Yeah, at all. the stories that I read in Winston Groom and Shiloh, of all things, his book about Shiloh has a really good account of Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson. And he talks about like the scalding, how men were just found, whatever they were doing when the moment they got scalded, like, and they were instantly killed, they were still in that position. So there was like the, the pilot of the wheelhouse was standing there. 
but he was dead. You know, it's pretty horrific way to die. And actually foot almost dies as well in this, but he manages to jump out, out of a window. But some of the men that jumped into the water, they ended up drowning too. It was a bad situation for them. Eventually though, they do the fort is, does get surrendered to the gunboats before Grant's infantry even arrives. And what foot does, he takes those three wooden gunboats. He sends them up to destroy a railroad bridge. That's linking the Columbus to Columbus and Bowling Green. Mm-hmm. So he can keep the soldiers away, which ended up proving to be very smart. Grant telegraphs Halleck proudly and says fort henry is ours i shall take fort donaldson on the eighth he was half right but again weather's going to come back now weather is going to is going to delay the supplies and it's going to delay their march to fort donaldson as they're getting ready to go yeah the one thing to note with fort henry is that it's taken by naval gunfire alone Mm -hmm. there's no union infantry really involved in this battle at all it's just the it's navy that does that manages to take fort henry and the other thing too like grant and foot they did work well together at this battle so this is where you see the army and the navy starting to work together on still butt heads later in this battle yeah but but for the the most part it was important as they do it so so now you get albert city johnson now so now he sees columbus vulnerable to attack from the rear and he can also see them overwhelming fort donaldson and eventually heading towards nashville so now johnson knows you're really in trouble now so his only real choice is going to be to defend fort donaldson or give up kentucky really it's just one or the other and that was supposed mm-hmm. to be neutral but he could use the whole army to defend nashville he has he's got that choice but it led to all kinds of confusions among their subordinates as well but ultimately what's going to eventually happen is they do have a council, like an emergency, emergency meeting, council of war, whatever you want to call it on the 7th. This is up at Bowling Green. And they're discussing options. And you know who's at this meeting, Mary, is our friend Beauregard. Beauregard's there. Yeah. It's funny. All he wants to do is he wants to smash Grant and smash Buell. Yeah. Which is funny because if he did, this current issue wouldn't happen later on. But that's neither here nor there. Johnson basically is going to decide, well, what we need to do is we need to put everybody at Donaldson and and make a real fight. We need to hold it the best we can. He's going to sign John Floyd, who we talked about during our secession episode. He would be the Secretary of War under James Buchanan. He was a wanted man in the North, Mary. Yes. For fraud, he was transferring weapons to Southern arsenals while still the Secretary of War under Buchanan. So he knows that he's persona non grata in the North. Yeah. But he's going to be the guy ultimately they put in charge but then but even lloyd didn't know what was going because lloyd thought okay i'm gonna be in charge of donaldson but basically we're holding this temporarily until johnson could send more guys from bowling green he, he, that's what he's thinking he doesn't realize those guys aren't coming it's these guys from henry and the guys who are already there so real quick talk about the brain trust that the rebs have which is saying along this one so <laughs> so so john floyd is going to be the guy now he is a political general he is questionable loyalty to the south because for that reason He's got no military experience. They don't like him. You could probably not find, well, at least three out of the four, but certainly guys who simply just did not get along. So John Floyd, is the, he's the guy who's going to be in charge, okay? The second in command is going to be Gideon Pillow. Third is going to be Simone Bolivar Buckner. Yeah. And the fourth is our friend Bushrod Johnson. Now, Buckner and Pillow hate each other. Oh, I mean, they do. hate each other. Yeah. And they're rivals. When you get your command, it's, uh, you know, your seniority is based on when you got it. There's a, there's a trickle down effect. But the funny part about it is when you look at the order of how who was controlling. So you have Floyd, Pillow, Buckner, and Johnson. It's the exact opposite of capability. If you really think about it, it, it right? is. And it, it all, the other thing it shows too, is, a, you know, there's a lot of talk about the battle of Chickamauga and how things were in the army of Tennessee with all the infighting with between Bragg and his generals, 
there is just as much here. I think you made a point when we were talking offline one day. This battle is the civil war all in one. Mm -hmm. You have like rivalries happening. You have the Navy, you have infantry, you have miscommunication and all this other stuff. But this infighting that is happening with the Confederates is kind of, I don't know, to me, it's like setting the stage for just how it goes in the Western theater for them. There's constant infighting, you know? You have four Brigadier Generals. They should have been better. I mean, you, you have oh, four yeah. guys, legit theoretical guys. They just didn't get it. They didn't get along. There's that story between Henry and Donaldson with a Union, an Illinois soldier. They catch a Confederate prisoner of war. And, they, and the Confederate says, you know, by the, not for nothing, but who's in command of you guys now? And this Illinois guy says, Ulysses Grant is. And the Reb goes, I never heard of him. And the guy says to him, he goes, you will know him well soon enough. But the other guy who was with them is a guy we'll talk about is Nathan Bedford Forrest, right? Mm -hmm. Cavalry guy, you know, slave owner in Tennessee, original wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. He's one of the richest men in the Confederacy. He's got money. And, you know, it's it's interesting when you look at just his his own personal history. We're not going to get too, too much on him. His great grandson was the first American general, Nathan Bedford Forrest the third to be killed in world war ii so it's 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 mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting when you look at the lineage right mm-hmm. this battle he kills his first yankee he kills a sharpshooter in a tree and so he actually gets his first civil war killed he's a guy who basically is the one guy who's consistent throughout this for better for worse because mm-hmm. he he doesn't like anybody he's going to do his job on the union side you know u.s grant he holds his own council of war decides what are we what are we doing here for the plan for this overland attack so who does he have He's got John McLaren. Talk about him. He's got Charles F. Smith. He's got our friend Lou Wallace of Ben Hur fame that yeah. we'll talk about. They're basically going to sit down and they're going to talk about what our plan, what are we going to do? McLaren, shockingly, is the only one who disagrees with the plan. He doesn't. He wants nothing to do with it. <laughs> this surprise. is where the <laughs> you know? the rift between Grant and McLaren begins. This is where Grant starts to question McLaren a little bit. I think. I think if U.S. Grant suggested best flavor of ice cream, he would have hated all of them at this point. Yeah, he just that's how it was. But Smith and Wallace and Foot, for that matter, they all yeah, this, this sounds like a pretty good plan. Mm-hmm. They're going to use a similar game plan they use on Henry. So basically, what they want to do, they're going to take the infantry, march the twelve miles east of Donaldson. That's what they're going to do. He's going to leave Lou Wallace behind at Fort Henry to kind of watch the fort. Doesn't think he needs three divisions because he's thinking this is going to be easy. He's going to have Foot go back up the Tennessee River to the Cumberland River, sail back down to Donaldson. He's going to carry some troops and some supplies. And the plan is when he gets there, he's going to fire a couple of shots at Donaldson for like us. We're here. So the infantry can hear them, know that they're available. And the plan ultimately in Grant's mind is let's use the Navy, pound them into submission, just like they did with Henry, yep. and we'll clean up afterwards. And that's pretty much what the game plan is. Yep. And it starts around, what is it, like February 13th? They start 12th. 12th they start going. And by February 14th, there's 10,000 Union reinforcements that have arrived. Yep. And four ironclads and two gunboats belonging to foot. And Grant just wants to recreate what he's done at Fort Henry. He thinks it's going to be so simple to do this, but it's not. Now, a lot of people say that this is Grant's shining hour, but he comes very close to losing everything here at this well, battle he, he, a little bit they, they it's almost like a little march to the sea sort of it's only 12 it miles but yep. they're going to march along the ridge and telegraph roads heading down you know that way lou wallace like i said is going to get left behind but the weather's going to slow them a little bit because remember yes. he said he was going to take it on the eighth right so now it's the 12th they're finally going to start going their march for the most part is unimpeded when they get about a mile away mclaren's uh, vanguard cavalry runs into forest 
who puts up a pretty good fight about a mile away. Forrest, we talked before about the weapons being kind of subpar Henry. Mm -hmm. Forrest's got good weapons. He's got those breech-loading rifles. He's going to dismount. He's going to hold a line for a while. The Union has their own worst enemy at times. You've got the 29th Illinois shooting each other, friendly fire, I don't know who the hell's what. So it's a little bit of a mess initially. Grant doesn't want to entrench. He wants to go, 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 because he's focusing on speed. And for this reason, a lot of his soldiers are going to make a gigantic mistake here, and they're going to drop their blankets, and they're going to drop their coats because they want to be able to go fast. It's a lot like it was a year later during the mud march. You have this period in, you know, February that is unseasonably mild. And as they're marching, obviously, yes, they want to go quicker, as you said, but too, they're thinking like, oh, it's mild. Why do I, I don't need to carry this with me. You know, it's going to impede me anyway. I'm not going to need it. But then the weather does turn on them eventually, as we're going to talk about. Exactly. So they finally get there. Eventually, the, the infantry does push Forrest back. So he does get moved back. So they're going to get about a mile away. They're going to surround over in Fort Donaldson and kind of pin the, the Rebs back to the Cumberland River. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to have McLernan's going to go on the right-hand side, and then C.F. Smith's going to be on the left-hand side. Wallace isn't there yet, but he's going to be, he's going to be coming. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be coming basically against the lines of, of Pillow on the left and then Buckner on the right. So it's going to – basically, they're going to kind of a standoff. Now, what's interesting about this is we talk about how these battles go down. Grant tells Smith and McLaren the same thing. He goes, listen, don't start anything. We're not all up yet. We, you know, foots and boats aren't in position yet. If you run into anybody, just stay. Don't do it. So naturally, the first thing they do is they start a fight, both of them. You know, it's, it's very similar to Gettysburg. You know, don't yep. bring on general engagement, but they, they both do it. But we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. So basically, night's going to arrive on that very first night of the 12th. And it's, you know, it's going to be, you know, it's, it's, there's not, there's too late to do anything. But they can see all the rebel campfires everywhere. So they, they know, like, okay, at Fort Henry, they took off. They're here. We know mm-hmm. they're here. And they're probably going to fight because they have nowhere to run because they're pinned against the river. So as night turns in the morning, you know, Floyd's Virginians are going to arrive. They're hearing sounds of the rebels cheering that you're hearing. Floyd coming. I don't know why they're cheering Floyd, but they're cheering. Probably there's more people coming. This is going to be a battle, which is, isn't going to be a battle basically of really infantry versus naval or any of that. It's going to be basically the military going up against rebel defenses. So that's the plan. Grant again tells both of these guys, Smith and McLaren, and when you get there, just demonstrate. Let them know you're there, but just mm-hmm. don't, you know, don't start anything because they want to test the rebel lines. Foot is going to finally get there yeah. that first time. It's going to be a little test for a little thing. He's going to basically, the U.S. Uh, Carondelet is, is repaired from Fort Henry, and he's going to be controlled by a guy named Colonel Henry Walk. He's a Virginian guy. And basically, they're going to begin like a diversionary bombardment. Basically, it's a kind of take the focus a little bit away from the infantry. Let the infantry kind of get settled. So you can mm-hmm. let Smith and McLaren kind of get that semicircle around the rest of the fort. And they're not right up against the fort either. No. They're, they're about a mile out, kind of a concentric type circle that's set back. Mm-hmm. But the Carondelet is going to have trouble right off the bat. This, now, yeah. this is the day before the real battle. We're talking about the 13th here. And the Carondelet is an ironclad, and, and they're going to be sent down. They're going to have some, they're going to have some yeah. trouble. They get a little bit too close. And so the rebels are able to fire upon them. But then because they're too close, the ironclads are going to overshoot their mark. And they eventually have to go back downstream again. Yeah, so they're going to get there. Rebs have eight guns, and they're big guns. Yeah. We're not talking about parrots or anything like that. These are big, big guns. These are Haney's guns. What's interesting about that very first shot, both sides got really one lucky shot in, right? The Carondelet fires, kills a guy named Captain uh, Captain Dixon. Mm-hmm. It's the second to last shot the boat's going to fire. It's going to hit a cannon. Cannon's going to explode. A piece of the cannon's going to go right through Dixon's head. He ain't going to make it. 
Yeah. Spoiler alert, he didn't make it, right? But basically, as Walk is backing off in the Carondelet, they're going to get hit by two shots. And it's a second to last shot they fire. So the last one hits the steam heater that starts to hiss. So a bunch of guys pick it up and they throw it overboard and they basically sail away. But the very first attempt to kind of get in there and test it out, they get pushed back pretty quick. And they realize they're in for a very formidable attack against these river guns. Yeah, they realize that, you know, taking Fort Donaldson is not going to be the same as taking Fort Henry. It's not going to be, it's not going to be a Navy thing that happens. Grant and Foote were banking on that. I think they thought it was basically going to be the same thing. But I don't know if they thought that like, oh shit, like there was hardly any men at Fort Henry when they get to Donaldson they've got to know that that's where there's those men have gone and they're facing a much more formidable force than what they faced at Fort Henry we mentioned before about the infantry right so CF Smith okay mm-hmm. from Philly so right off the bat yeah that's he was going to be a, very aggressive on that one He's in charge of the 2nd Division on the Union left he's got Buckner in front of him so what he's going to basically do is He's going to move towards him along the, the Eddysville Road. But the problem, too, is the maps aren't any good. They must have gone to the, the mobile station and got the crappy map. They must have gone to where the same place Sherman went when he got his ex- map exactly. from Missionary so Ridge. Basically take Battery D of the 1st Missouri Artillery to file in the red position to find him. Because he's like, oh, I think they're in this area, but this map is here. So they're going to fire there. He fires on him. You know what he does then? He stops and he has breakfast. Yeah. Got to have your breakfast. Very important. He has God. breakfast. So, so he has breakfast. And then he orders Colonel John Cook's 3rd Brigade and a guy named Jacob Lawman's 4th Brigade to march on Buckner's line. He's like, we think that's where they are, so we'll go march on them. You're going to be in full battle formation. While they're walking, Smith's probably thinking, you know what? I know he told me not to do this, but whatever. He just says, fuck it. He just, he's, he does. So he violates Grant's orders. The attack is kind of inconclusive. They kind of get, they kind of get yeah. pushed back a little bit. But again, they did find where they were, though. They did. So McLaren on the other side, he's going to basically be marching along. And as he's walking down a road called the Wind Ferries, Wind Ferries and Pyrenees Roads heading towards Dover, they're going to take artillery fire as they're walking. It's going to hit them basically right in their flank as they're trying to march. They reach a place called Dudley's Hill. They recklessly expose themselves. And so next thing you know, they're in view with the artillery. So they start to take hit. Basically, a guy named uh, there was a uh, Captain Maney's batteries up there. He's basically drilling these soldiers as they're mm-hmm. going because they're just marching by and they're getting hit. So what McLaren does, similar to what Smith does, he goes against orders and he orders a brigade to go and attack the rebel guns right yep. on them. So you know not going to work out well. Picks a guy named William Morrison was probably his weakest brigade commander and within 15 minutes they get shredded yep. 150 dead kind of a bummer story too because they're in an open field and the guns have started fire so it's almost like a wilderness situation where the yep. fires are engulfing the, the you know the, the wounded you know that night the temperature starts to get really cold so now it's the night of the 13th and it's freezing so these rebels are hearing the sounds of these screaming guys the fire it's cold and yep. you know so they actually, they go against orders and jump the lines and they go and start to save these the Union guys. Like, I kind of want to listen to this anymore. So they go and pull some guys back. So it's kind of a, an Angel of Maurice Heights type situation. Again, they both pay the price, but especially McLaren and for going directly against Grant's orders. Yeah, yeah, just to go and attack and then... Like, this was the last thing that Grant had wanted was an attack like this. That's why we have orders. Yeah. Perhaps <laughs> and he's like, what them. the fuck is going on? <laughs> you know? You know? Um, but that night, you know, it's cold. It's, it's just freezing, snowy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the one thing about the Civil War stuff, Mary, is 
people don't talk about the weather enough. They no. really don't. So this is a night where you're talking between 10 and 15 degrees. It's snowy. It's sleet. It's freezing rain. These guys don't forget. What do they did? They dropped their blankets and yeah. coats to go faster. Now they're screwed, right? Yeah. So they don't have that with them. So they're told not to light fires. And a lot of them do anyway. Because apparently nobody else is following orders. I'm not going to do it either. So it's either freeze to death or light a fire and get shot at. But at least yeah. at least I'll be warm. I guess that was the attitude. It, it's had. so similar to the mud march, though. You know, yeah. it's very, very similar. There's been other times, too. Battles for Chattanooga, it got pretty cold. Battle of Chickamauga, it gets really cold that night in September. There's a frost and the men don't mm-hmm. have any blankets and they have to just basically where, where they were fighting, that's where they sleep. And when they woke up in the morning, like their clothes were frozen and everything else. And that's very similar to what these guys are going through except these guys had a real battle that was coming so the next morning is february 14th it's valentine's day perhaps they had some vinegar valentine's to pass to mclaren (laughs) and smith perhaps maybe they did but grant's gonna be in his staff at this point nine o'clock in the morning they're gonna they're gonna ride over to the cumberland river to consult with foot on his flagship, which is now the USS St. Louis. And again, they're talking about the fact that, okay, we had a tough day yesterday on with the Carondelet, but we still think it could be like Fort Henry if we do this thing right. So he's going to basically tell the troops, the boats, flee the transports just along the Cumberland River to go back to the infantry guys, to, to those troops surrounding the fort. He tells Foote what he wants to do is he wants to run the boats past the rebel gun positions to, to basically to draw enfilade fire. So he's going to basically tell him to run the gauntlet is what he's going to do. Yeah. He also wisely orders Wallace from Fort Henry to come. So instead of he was back guarding Fort Henry, now he directs him. You need to come up here. You need to get. You need to basically get between McLaren and, and, and CF Smith to help support because we're gonna yeah. we're gonna need more guys. Uh, get here as fast as you can. He'll be more than glad he did that when this whole thing was over. Oh yeah, because Wallace is one of the MVPs of this battle and the other thing too that grant does is he goes over to see mcclernand and grant just says the position on the right must be retaken and he he, he does he and grant basically says the one who attacks now will be victorious so he's he's ready to go so he he goes and tells foot foot's like listen can we just wait i got a i got a boat coming with some Mm -hmm. more guys i want these mortars can we just wait till he gets here and grant says no I want you to freaking go. Just go. So Foot grumbles a little bit, but agrees to go. I do this, but, but under protest. And so he decides he's going to go. He's going to sail down the Cumberland to Fort Donaldson. So the Rebs, in the Rebs' defense, literally and figuratively, they anticipate this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So those, those river guns, they're manned all night. They're ready to go. There's a guy named Captain Reuben Ross. He's the guy who's in charge now that Dixon's, you know, Dixon didn't make it. What does he do? Okay. He's standing there early in the morning. He looks across the river. And what does he see? He sees smoke on the water. Not sure if he saw fire in the sky, Mary. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Okay. Just who knows? Maybe he did. He's a little, per- little deep purple action for you. He goes and he tells Floyd at the rebel headquarters, hey, just so you know, this smoke. So the, I think the boats are coming. Floyd is too busy. He's got too much stuff to do. So yep. he's messaging with Johnston at the time. He's telling him, look, I'm facing 40,000 Yankees. I don't know how he counts them, but he's got 40,000 Yankees. But he goes, I'll, I'll fight them. We're going to fight this evening. They're trying to decide, well, we're pinned here. So we're going to attack Grant's line. I've got, I've got Pillow. I've got Buckner. I've got Bushrod Johnson. They're deciding how they're going to do this. At that moment, Foot's boats arrive. So it kind of changes their plans a little bit. You know, there's that story, there's this quotes about how they were on Foot's boats and were putting sand on the decks to present, yeah. you know, to make it the blood doesn't go everywhere. So at 2 p.m., the ironclads do arrive. This would be the St. Louis, the Louisville, the Pittsburgh, and the Carondelet, who's now been repaired. So they're going to lead the attack, followed by the USS Tyler 
in the constant oga. So that one, right? But that's that's what that was. And um, the other thing too that is really interesting about this battle is like Lou Wallace writes about it afterwards, and he talks a lot about C.F. Smith's performance. And C.F. Smith is he's fifty five years old. He's Grant's old commandant from West Point, and Grant felt a little bit odd at first having to be in charge of the guy who used to be in charge of him. But I think Smith in some ways gets the union MVP at this battle as well, because he's, you know, out there leading his men. Lou Wallace said that the air about him twittered with mini balls erect as if on review. He rode on timing the gait of his horse with the movement of his colors. He said that one soldier said, I was nearly scared to death, but I saw the old man's white mustache over his shoulder and went on. So Smith Smith is able to help rally these troops back together. But the action's not over in the water yet, though. No. I mean, basically, foot is coming down. Foot makes a really bad mistake. And mm-hmm. what he does, he stops the boats about 400 yards away from the shore and anchors them, thinking he's going to park the boats and it's going to start unloading on them. Fort Henry style. So the boats at that this point are sitting ducks. So Captain Ross, who mentioned before, he opens up on these gunboats, just bang, 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 right? And these ironclads are just punished. They're getting just drilled. Foots aboard the USS St. Louis. He's hit ironically in the foot with a shell piece, that same shell piece that actually killed the, the pilot of that boat. Yeah. All the boats begin to float back up the river again. Carondelet is the last one to go. But the, the Rebs had a 50% hit rate, which is unheard of at, at this That's time. Crazy. So, so 50% of all these rebel guns, big guns, were hitting their targets. That fails again. So it goes back up. So night approaches on the 14th. And the Union soldiers, these guys in Smith and McLaren and eventually Wallace's divisions, they can hear the Rebs cheering because they think they, I don't know how the hell we did this, but we won this, you know. They're cheering, basically. It's the high point of the Confederacy at Donaldson at this very moment. It's going to go bad, but at this very moment, they the guns that just scuttled Fort Henry, they pushed away. That night's probably a low mark, again, for the Union, yeah. and that night is the high mark for the Confederacy. But the generals, the Rebs, they're not stupid, though. They know that they have no chance. Grant starts to realize at this point that it's not going to be easy. He writes to Julia, the taking of Fort Donaldson bids fair to be a long job. Yeah. That's what he writes. So he knows he's probably going to win this, but he also knows it's not going to be easy. Yeah, no, it's a very long, drawn-out affair for them. It's that night that they hold a council of war at Donaldson. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny because you got to think, you know, you're John Floyd, right? Yeah. And you're excited you won this. He wires Albert Sidney Johnson, basically saying, hey, we won, we won, we won. And Johnson responds back, that's great, but if you lose the fort, bring your troops to Nashville as fast as you can. So he's basically saying, listen, you know, like Han Solo style, don't get cocky, kid. Yeah. Because he knows what's coming. So in that council of war, they decide, very similar to Gettysburg again, do we stay or do we go? Because they realize they're still surrounded. So that the boats are gone, but they're still pinned against the Cumberland. They've got now three divisions, because Wallace has arrived, that are surrounding them. So they know, they know that the prospects are not good. Gideon Pillow, you know, being the who he is says yep. let's stay and fight the others all vote to go <laughs> take yep. off so they decide what they're going to do is they're going to do it they're going to leave under a cover of a surprise attack next morning so what basically what they want to do they're going to move all their troops from the confederate right to the confederate left they're going to burst through the union line kool-aid man style yeah right through the wall <laughs> okay and they're going to start heading back towards fort henry get the hell out of dodge that's the plan of course bushrod johnson is sitting there just shaking his head thinking this plan is not going to freaking work but that they all vote yep, but that's whatever yep and that's and 
this is also where Floyd and Pillow want to get out of there for other reasons too. Yeah. They're both we'll, we'll wanted men. Kill. Like Floyd we'll, is we'll, like, fuck, I cannot be captured at we'll all. We'll get to that. Like we'll he, get that towards the end of this, but it's, yeah. it's hilarious that these they're already looking to save their skin. So February 15th is a Saturday morning. The Rebs are going to plan for an early morning attack. And this is where the weather actually helps the Rebs, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's snowy and windy. So basically, as Pillow's guys begin to move from the right to the left and get into position, the Union guys can't hear moving. Just because it's windy and it's cold, they mm-hmm. can't hear it. Buckner's going to be on the Rebel right. They're going to ultimately leave one regiment back to cover. So you're going to have like 450 guys to hold off Smith's entire division. So they're just basically a bump in the road at that point. Pillow and Johnson do finally begin their attack. Buckner's still not in position. He's who the hell he is, but he's but he's got a, he's got a little bit of a little bit of room to travel, so he's got a little bit of time to go on those icy roads. And McLaren, he yep. wakes up to the sound of the rebel yell. That's what he wakes up to. Yep, you know? and his troops are very poorly positioned, and he's going to experience a flanking attack from Forrest. Forrest is going to get he's going to get him. He's going to get behind him. He's going to get all he's going to go all up in there. Is what he's going to get. This is actually where John MacArthur's fighting here too. Yeah. Yep, he yeah. makes it. He's made an appearance at a few battles that we've talked yeah. about in the Western Theater. So this ends up being a complete, just a complete slugfest. By eight o'clock in the morning, McLaren's retreating. He's getting pushed back. A lot of these soldiers are, are out of ammo. The 18th Illinois was completely out of ammunition. They lost everything. But you, to your point, they're getting flanked and attacked from all angles. They are, yeah. Um, and so at this point, he decides to uh, phone a friend. He messages Lou Wallace for help and says, "Hey, um, can you do me a can you do me a huge solid? Can you help me out and get some yep. my ass kicked here?" So Wallace basically says, "I don't take orders from you. Grant told me I gotta wait." Let's go find Grant. And guess where Grant is? They don't know. Grant ain't there. It's like a yucca. He's not there, right? Grant is back with foot on his boat, you know, and he can't hear the attack going on because that's just the, the distance, yeah. the woods, the and so it's almost like a picketed five fork situation. So there's an attack going on that's threatening his divisions, and he doesn't know about it. He can't hear it. The wood mass of sounds, the battles. So where foot and Grant are, they they can't hear it. So this is all going on. Yeah. The, the morning continues and, you know, Pillow and Johnson are, sounds like a bad law firm, by the way. They're on the verge of a breakthrough. The feds are out of supplies, out of ammo, and they almost got it. The Revs almost have it. The feds get pushed all the way back. Two of three McLaren's brigades are destroyed, basically. One is, is running. Everything's going great for the Confederates at mm-hmm. this point. The soldiers are ready to go. Let's go, go, go. But this is where the generals and their little attitudes come back to haunt the Confederates. It does, so yeah. The soldiers are ready to go, but the generals are not ready. And so they waste two hours, two hours standing around. The soldiers are milling around waiting for the next move. It's like you're burst out of prison, right? Yeah. And you get past the gate and you just got to go 10 feet to the road and get in the car that's going to take you away. And they say, you just wait right there. And they wait and they wait and they wait. It ends up being a delay that it's going to ultimately cost them. So Mm -hmm. Pillow, Buckner, and Johnson are all squabbling. Pillow's pissed at Buckner for not breaking the line. Again, Buckner thinks he should have rank over Pillow for whatever reason. They don't want to take orders from each other. And so you can kind of see um, you can kind of see what's going on. And I made a mistake earlier. <laughs> this is the day that Grant said the one who attacks first will now be victorious. He probably said it a bunch of times. <laughs> So, you know, Lou Wallace, to his credit, and this is where you're going to be good for old Lou, okay? Yep. He rides in his chariot, Ben-Hur style. He does. And he does. So he does take the initiative at this point. He's like, look, I Grant ain't here. This, this is something bad's going down. I'm going to move my guys. He moves his troops to the right to support McLaren. And yep. He takes position along that Winds Ferry Road to block the rebels and slow their escape. So 
At this point, the numbers are going against the Confederates. So Pillow starts to realize they missed their chance, basically. He starts to order his troops back to the original entrenchments. Floyd's going to eventually order all of his guys back from the defensive perimeter. So they get all the way out. Now they're falling back again. Now, Grant, this is when he learns of the attack. This is when he gets it. So yeah. he finds out and he rides along. He jumps on his horse and rides on his icy road fast as he can. He gets there. He sees the troops in complete disarray and he, he just, it's a complete mess. But then he also finds out, he's talked to some rebel prisoners and he finds out that, hey, I'm, I know you guys all look like you're all screwed, but our guys are worse. You should see us. Yeah. So he's finding out that the rebel, you know, the rebel command and control is a mess. The soldiers have no idea what they're doing either. And this is when, to your point, he decides, okay, we need to take initiative because at this point, whoever mans up takes the initiative is going to mm-hmm. win right now. So yep. that's what he does. Yep. And that's what happens. And that's where you have like CF Smith coming through as well as like Lou Wallace and all that. They do manage to to gain back the ground they had lost. Like by 530, Lou Wallace has managed to retake the ground they had lost that morning and the Confederates have been pushed back to their original positions. So Grant does plan at the end of the day to resume his attack in the morning, although he neglects to close the escape route that pillow had, had opened up. So, so you think about it, just picture Grant riding up, chewing yeah. that cigar. This is the, they say this is the first time they really noticed him with the cigars mm-hmm. that they would talk about. Yeah. He's chewing on, on, he's on his horse. He's chewing on an unlit cigar and he realizes how close he came to screwing up bad yeah just because right? he can't hear the sounds of the battle right? and so like, but but he gets there in time and his credit he saves the day basically he stabilizes the union lines yeah. you know the soldiers basically see him he gets big and motivated mm-hmm. the rebs get to your point gets pushed back but just knowing how close the rebels came now the rebels burst through i'm not sure what they would have happened but they would have burned they should have burst through but they got stopped so lou wallace coming in fortifying the lines mm-hmm too really helps and i think cf smith was a real like he managed to boost morale with the way that he was riding around and just picture that night of the 15th because this was a big mess yeah you know there was a a thousand people dead right there right three thousand are lying freezing to death on the cold is that it's on the cold night so now it's early hours of february 16th 1 30 a.m basically goderich call me maybe time on a a saturday (laughs) not for the month of february nope 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 but that time's about right Yeah, you wait for that first weekend in march oh yeah we're lucky (laughs) day but basically floyd's gonna hold another council of war at the the door hotel so he's gonna basically say listen what do you guys want to do in this time they all agree they say let's get the hell out of here right except nathan bedford forest he's yeah. pissed yeah he's like, he's, what yeah he's, he's like, like he's like nope and he's like i did not come here for the purpose of surrendering my command you know these aren't the droids you're looking for yeah. so he's gonna storm out of the meeting okay he's gonna leave donaldson he's gonna escape to nashville he's gonna jump he's gonna cross the frozen lick creek they said mm-hmm. he's gonna escape over it's uh he's gonna leave the dance floor as you like to say so he's gonna go they all agree they're gonna they're gonna surrender. They they have no choice. So yeah. Floyd, he's like, well, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna surrender, but I'm not gonna be the guy. I'm a wanted guy back to back, and I I gotta get the hell out of here. Yeah. So I'm, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna be arrested. So I can't do it. I'm gonna give the job to you, Gideon Pillow. So you're congratulations, <laughs> you got a promotion. You're in charge. And Pillow's like, you know, no, no, no he doesn't I don't want to do that. it because he's Pillow like, had this habit in public of saying, "Give me liberty or give me death." Yeah, and now he's fearing that if he gets captured, he's going to be the laughing stock of like the Yankees and the Rebs. So he's like, "Nope, guess what, Buckner? Yeah, it's he's your like, lucky fucking he's day." Like, he's like, 
thank you, General Floyd. I accept the offer, but I now bestow it on you, Simon Buckner. He goes, hey, Simon, look at that way. And he runs out the other way out the door. Yep. He's, he escapes too. So Buckner, he's like, well, okay, this is my this is my thing. Buckner, you know, he's- I feel bad faith. for him. But you know what, though? He sits there and says, he's like, yeah, okay. He accepts his faith. Yeah. He sends a message to Grant to terms of surrender. So that's a very famous story we'll talk about. Yeah. But he's hoping that he's merciful to him because before the war- when Grant was destitute, Buckner apparently let him gave him money. Yep. And he's thinking, well, if I surrender, he's he'll remember that. Maybe he'll give us a break. So he's going to basically do this. So what we what we basically done here is this. So we are going to real quick in, in a nutshell what he does. He basically asks Grant, what are the what what's the deal here? What do we want to do? And Grant does his famous unconditional surrender. Blah blah blah. Buckner gets mad. So, of course, here at the Civil War Breakfast Club World Headquarters, what we decided to do was, again, recreate this letter. So just imagine if this would happen today, how this letter would have gone. So why don't you be Buckner, okay, and I will be Grant, and we'll see how this letter probably went in today's terms. Yeah. So these are text messages that they would have sent. So Obviously. This is Buckner to Grant. Hey, buddy. You know, considering how shit is going down right now, how about we discuss how we can work things out here? How about noonish? You know, maybe you can do me a favor and cut me some slack. Wink emoji. (laughs) You know, help a fellow out. Your friend, Simon. Grant gets the text message, looks at it, laughs. And he says, you know, help a brother, help someone out. How about you drop your linen and start your grinning? The only terms I'm accepting is a full French salute, Simon. You don't understand. I am ready to kick ass and smoke cigars, and I have plenty of matches. (laughs) Dude. Well... I'm backed into a fucking corner here between Pillow and Floyd noping the fuck out of here because they had a my people need me moment and the shit you've been throwing at me and shade apparently. I have no choice. I have no choice but to accept your petty, unchivalrous terms. So much for favors. I'll raise the flag, but before I do, middle finger emoji, middle finger emoji, middle finger emoji. Fuck you, Buckner. Wow. <laughs> and that's exactly how it went. So, so Buckner does surrender the entire army. Uh, we'll talk about the num- the casualty numbers that Mary loves to talk about here in a few minutes. But, but basically, the rebel army is that basically going to be marched to Union prison camps. This is the first big Union victory here. So, this v- victory resonates in the North big time. It automatically catapults U.S. Grant to star level. He gets thousands upon thousands of cigars sent to him, just sent to him, which ultimately was his undoing, ironically. He earns a Lincoln administration's complete love. He captured more rebel prisoners than all previous Civil War commanders combined at that point. 12,392 people he bagged. 12,392. That's a huge, huge number. So he gets promoted to major general with the help of a guy named Elihu Washburn from Illinois, who's a big Lincoln guy who um, ironically died in Galena, Illinois. He was a big proponent of Grant, and he, he helped get him promoted to major general. And he's going to be put in charge of this new creation called the Army of the Tennessee. And, and this, this will resonate as we go later on. We start talking about things like Shiloh and Corinth, and, and it has all the way through, all the stuff we've been talking about. But Donaldson falling is basically going to give the United States Army the ability to attack further south along the Tennessee River. Yeah, It's going to free Kentucky. Of all the rebs, it's going to free up all those cities that are up there. Now they're, now they're under federal control. It's going to open up all the rivers of the South, like we mentioned before. And what it really does is it really, besides beginning U.S. Grant's cigar habit, by the yeah. way, it really puts him on the national stage now. And it helps offset the bad news that's coming out of the East almost daily. This is their bright star that's coming out of the West. 
And as this goes on, and we start to look at things like Shiloh that are coming down the road, these battles, like that domino thing you and I always talk about, yep. these things set up what's going to be coming on later that's going to ultimately help prove, that's going to pave the road for Grant to go all the way through. We have this, this Sherman up and yep. kind of go from there. Yeah, it does. As you said, there's the domino effect on the on the Confederate side of things. You have the line that Albert Sidney Johnson had established completely breaks. He's no longer in Kentucky anymore. So he is basically forced to go to Corinth. So he's moving further south. And this battle, this taking of Donaldson and Fort Henry, this is why Shiloh happens. If you don't have Henry and Donaldson, then you don't have Shiloh because you're basically forcing the Confederates to break the line that they had established. So at the end of all of this, just we'll do the casualty numbers because I'm a morbid person. They're primarily, the casualties were heavy because of large Confederate surrender. So union losses are about 2,691 and the Confederates are 13,846 with most, most of these being captured or missing. This does do something for morale in obviously in, in the North, but it also starts to break it a little bit in the South too. But you have somebody like Jeff Davis who realizes just how disastrous this loss is, but he's still doing this thing where he's trying to typical politician, like things are okay. This is fine. Meanwhile, there's fire going well. on behind it. Yeah, exactly. This is fine. You know, the dog <laughs> drinking the coffee, that's Jefferson Davis. He said, though the tide of movement is against us, the final result in our favor is never doubtful. It was perhaps in the ordination of providence that we are taught the value of our liberties by the price we pay for them. In other words, We've lost Henry and Donaldson, but it doesn't mean we're going to lose this fight. And it doesn't mean we're going to lose the war. So basically, we've lost the battle, but we have not lost the war yet. And as I said, Johnson's line has collapsed. He is heavily criticized in the newspapers. He's accused of being incompetent, drunk. He's even accused of treason in some places. But really, when you look back at it, Johnston has been trying to get help from Richmond and it's refused because they don't have the arms to send him that he needs. And he's got insubordinates that are not listening to him when they say you need to fortify, you need to make sure because they could come down the river and attack you. That's what happens. But Davis, which is this is a pattern that we're going to see from him later with Braxton Bragg. Now, Albert Sidney Johnson is a very talented general, and I see why Davis stands by him. I think he recognizes that talent. Davis says, if Sidney Johnson is not a general, we had better give up the war, for we have no no general. So what happens is Beauregard and John, or Beauregard, sorry, that's what we call him on the podcast. Beauregard and Johnson plan an offensive in Tennessee. Uh, Beauregard says, we must do something or die in the attempt. Otherwise, all will be shortly lost. In the North, Halleck is going to actually take a little bit of credit <laughs> for these victories as well. So it's not all just on, on Grant. Halleck is going to send Grant to a place called Pittsburgh Landing, 20 miles north of Corinth. He orders Buell to join him there with 35,000 troops. And Halleck plans on going there eventually as field commander to lead them against Corinth. So that's where this is going to wrap up, is a place called Pittsburgh Landing. Well, and you're going to, they're going to be running into an angry bunch of Confederates who want to throw them out of Tennessee. Yeah. So they, the Confederates are embarrassed by the way the whole Fort Donaldson, Fort Henry thing worked out. They don't want these guys in their, their backyard. So you're going to get guys like Beauregard and these guys are going to get together and say, we've got to push the Confederates out of Pittsburgh Landing. They're going to meet on April 4th, a place called Shiloh, that we're going to talk later on about. And that's going to be really the, the, the revenge in their minds of the Confederates. This is going to be their way to get back after, after Fort Donaldson. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll not to spoil the ending, but it ain't going to work out too well, but we'll no. talk about that in more detail. But I think what it does, Shiloh does not happen if Donaldson doesn't happen. Yeah. 
So Donald Donaldson doesn't happen if Henry doesn't happen. And Henry doesn't happen if Grant doesn't go to hell like a, with foot and say, we, we want to do this. Yep. So it all goes back to these initial decisions about why sometimes, and sometimes you get lucky. And this time they got lucky, but they got good, right? Yeah. Um, everything worked out well for them. And it's yep. going to really set the stage in the West because these it does. This, this area in the West is really what's going to set the action in motion that's going to basically go through the rest of the war. And I think the, the, the couple takeaways from just studying this battle that it does often, what gets talked about the most is unconditional surrender grant. It's not really looked at how close they could have come to disaster here you know but you have men like lou wallace and even and smith that are kind of they're the union mvps in this battle that are there to to save the day right and grant too i mean grant grant was a good one to have in charge here obviously too but the other thing to remember to note as well is the incompetence on the confederate side well it just goes to show you can have the best players on the team but yeah. they all hate each other you're not exactly. going to win and yeah. the pillow in the Buckner thing is a real thing. It really showed, you know, at the worst possible moment, mm -hmm. right? When they were basically going to finally they were gonna burst through just because of personal vendettas and not wanting to take orders from each other. They had their chance. They really did. And they let it slip away. And then to Grant's credit, to your point, this really, really becomes U.S. Grant at this yeah. moment. Picture him riding up with a cigar in his mouth, directing people around. And that point on, he really never turned around again. As far as his turn back, I mean, he really was the one who became forceful and really became U.S. Grant's the one that he gets all the credit for, but it could have gone the other way so easily. Oh, it could have. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why you have to remember men like Lou Wallace in this battle too, that, you know, and Lou Wallace as we're going to talk about at Shiloh down the road. He's not going to come out of that battle with a very good reputation, unfortunately, you know, as good as your next day, right? Yeah. You know, exactly. As good as your next day. Lick him Lou tomorrow. Wallace. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So anyway, so I think that's a good place to, to leave the boys on Pittsburgh Landing, yep. heading down there and getting ready to head down there for a while. So, so I think at the end of the day, it really tells a really good in-depth story of the beginning stages, the the, uh, the prequel of Shiloh. Yeah. And so in a couple of weeks, when the weather gets warm, hopefully, finally, we'll talk about Shiloh. And rumor has it. It's going to be a two-parter. It's going to be a two-parter. Yep. That's what the boss says, two hard. So she says two-parter, it's two-parter. So anyway, I think that's a great day. So Mary, good time as always mm -hmm. doing this. So we look yep. forward to the next one. So again, by the time this drops on Saturday, we will have our fifth, I can't believe it's fifth one yep, already, fifth the round, round table. table. Yep. Mm -hmm. we'll, have our, we'll have our live. And then we'll, the book will be here before we know it. Yep. Right in the March. So. Yep. In the March. So anyway, thanks to every thanks to everybody for listening. We appreciate it as always. 27 episodes is in the book. Holy yep. moly, 27. You've been deal with you for 27 weeks. Wow. Yep, I but have. I'm and I'm not drinking right now either. Oh, yeah, you're much more fun sober, I tell you. Ah, anyway, but, but regardless, it's um it's a good thing. So anyway, so again, thanks everybody. We appreciate it. So coming attractions, we will be looking at Meridian Campaign next week. Setting you up there. And so then, pay attention. Yep. And then Pea Ridge. And then I think we're doing um, Kernstown. Yeah, we'll be doing a lot of fun stuff. So we have yeah. a lot of fun stuff coming down the road. So again, thanks for listening. We look forward to, to the next one. Mary, great to see you as always. Once you again, too. as I say many times, the pleasure was all yours. <laughs> and we will um, look forward to talking to you next time. Yep. Everybody have a wonderful Saturday and we will see you all again soon. Peace out. Yeah. Bye.